ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll close out chapter 2 uh, this morning, which will leave us with a couple of chapters left in the book of Philippians. Probably the more well-known chapters are still to come, but I hope that um, the Lord uses what remains for us here. We're going to begin reading in verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 30. If you remember from last week, um, Paul was saying, uh, I trust in the Lord that I will come to you shortly. Um, I'm going to send Timothy to you shortly, Um, but neither Paul nor Timothy are on their way to Philippi. Instead, we get verse 25. It says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Um, We're going to go through those verse by verse, uh, five small observations as we go along the way. Um, But the general idea here is Epaphroditus was a uh, pastor, um, a minister to the church in Philippi. That's where he was from. That's where, at least that's where he was stationed. Um, He had been entrusted with this financial gift to Paul, who was imprisoned in Rome. And he most likely would not have carried this financial gift by himself. So it would have been Epaphroditus and probably... We don't know how many, but a few others traveling from Philippi to Rome to give this gift to Paul. Somewhere along the way, um, Epaphroditus became ill, um, very sick, and it was growing worse and worse. We don't know the details. Could very well be that the journey had to be uh, halted temporarily. It seems that the church in Philippi knew of his sickness. So we infer that one of his traveling companions or else wherever they were halted, somehow word was sent back to Philippi to pray for Epaphroditus because while this was just supposed to be a delivery mission to Rome, uh, things had taken a very ugly turn and he was now facing the prospect of even death. And... He had uh, continued on in the journey, uh, whether he got well and then continued, rather he, or whether he was continuing to get worse, and he continued. Either way, they made it to Rome. They give the gift to Paul, and Epaphroditus is immediately concerned because he knows the last word that Philippi had was that he was very sick, even unto death, and so he is concerned that uh, they be assured that he is not dead. And not merely that the gift was delivered okay, but that he was truly okay and um, was safe and sound. That's basically the context 
of this section. So let's look at it now, having kind of laid out the verses, uh, verse by verse. Look at verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary. Again, the yet is, you know, I, you know, I would like to come to you. I'd like to send Timothy to you. But I think it's necessary to send you Epaphroditus. And then he gives three descriptions of Epaphroditus. You note each one because they each say something different here. My brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Um, in in the, the first thing here is just Paul sending Epaphroditus to them. Notice those descriptions, my brother, my co-worker, and fellow soldier. I think those bear an increasing significance, uh, each building upon the former. My brother is something that Christian people would say of other Christian people everywhere, right? I mean, we are a part of the family of God. When you are saved, when you are you know, uh, saved by Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus, you're brought into a family relationship with God. Uh, the New Testament telling us that we've been given the right to be called sons of God. Uh, when you are brought into the family of God, you, you are united spiritually and eternally, I should say, with other people who are not a part of your biological family necessarily, but who are also children of God. And it's those people whom, as children, God will give an eternal inheritance to. That's the logic here. When we read about an eternal inheritance in heaven, it's, the, it's not merely the fact that we're forgiven, but it's the fact that we are reconciled to God in such a way where He has adopted us, that's Ephesians 1, into His family, made us His children, and children receive an inheritance. You know, laborers don't receive an inheritance, workers don't receive an inheritance, but children receive an inheritance. And if we are children, then we are, in some respect, brothers to Christ and brothers and sisters to each other. And that's an appeal that we should be comfortable making. Um, we should note that one of the most scandalous things in the early church throughout the Roman Empire was the affection inside local churches between people of different races and people of different social classes. So much so that you might have a slaveholder and a slave in a church fellowship with each other. And whereas every other social context would have had one dictating to the other how life was to be lived, in the fellowship of the church... They would be seen embracing one another, sitting side by side at a table, singing side by side in attendance, giving mutually and loving mutually the things of the Lord together. And that was scandalous. As a matter of fact, in a culture built upon the clear distinction of powerful classes, such as Rome was, this was a destabilizing thing in the Roman Empire and very concerning to the people in power. Um, you can get this from a lot of the 1st and 2nd century observations of lost people in the Roman Empire about the church. They did not like, they ridiculed and mocked the fact that um, slaves were embraced, that women were given status, that, that there was an equality under Christ in the church. And that equality stems from the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe we take a step into the social world around us and we are boss-employee 
or taxpayer and tax collector or whatever other power struggle might exist. But in the context of who we truly are, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he begins with a greeting that would be familiar uh, throughout the church. Epaphroditus is my brother. But then he pivots to saying my co-worker, which is something more. We might very well be brothers or sisters in Christ to a great number of people without actually laboring beside them. But there is a, a natural intimacy, a companionship that comes when we labor beside people, when we are not merely brothers, but we are working together. And Paul is an apostle, kind of in the role of a missionary. And so, you know, you would look at at a man like Paul, and you would say, I wonder who his co-workers are. And you might readily identify Timothy. We know Timothy was a co-worker. Luke traveled with Paul, and there are a few others in the New Testament. But Epaphroditus is a pastor, a local pastor in Philippi. For all we know, his familiarity with Paul start and stopped with the beginning of the church in Philippi and the starting of the church in Philippi, and Epaphroditus is you know, appointment to be a pastor of the church in Philippi. And as far as we know, that's as much as it went. And yet to be called a co-worker of Paul is to get a stamp of approval from the apostle that this man's work is work that I consider my own. His objectives are my own. His labor is the same. Which is a pretty complimentary thing for uh, the apostle of the Gentile church to say about you. And then finally, the third description here, a fellow soldier, which is language totally uncommon to Paul in the New Testament. There are a few military references of Paul, some of them very famous, the armor of God, for instance. But by and large, when you look at the, at the mass of what Paul writes in the New Testament, military analogies are few and far between. And here he calls Epaphroditus a soldier. And I think perhaps in the sense of this is a person who soldiered through with great dedication and in sending him back to you, this is, this is a wounded soldier going home. This is someone who has sacrificed, someone who has done what was required and he's going home uh, to you all in Philippi. Um, when he says, but he is your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, this is Paul saying that you know, the church's man had done well, which is a good thing. You know, a church uh, like ours, not altogether different than a church like the one in Philippi, just a local church. Locality may be different, but in the broad scheme of things, we talk about the global church and all that God is doing in the world. We could be excused sometimes for feeling small and all of that. <laughs> You know, not totally insignificant, but perhaps mostly insignificant sometimes is the feeling of it. But we don't know what God is doing with our labor. And it's no small praise that Paul would look at the church's man and say he did well. To me, he's a brother and a co-worker and a soldier. To you, he's a messenger and a minister. But he met my needs which is the second thing that we'll notice here. Epaphroditus' function, he served as a minister to Paul's needs. You might not know this. We could be forgiven for not knowing it. 
But in Rome, prisoners of the state were not cared for by the state. Paul was not being delivered three square meals a day. Um, it was dependent upon the prisoner and those who cared for them to provide for their sustenance and their need. And so when we talk about uh, the church in Philippi bringing this gift to Paul, it's not, it's not arbitrary. This is not the icing on top. This is necessary. He was, like many faithful ministers of God, at the mercy of God, supplying through ordinary people. That's where he was. And if uh, God compelled ordinary people to provide, then he would be provided for. And if they did not provide, then, as he said, I, I know what it means to abound, and I know what it means to have want. <laughs> Epaphroditus had met a real need. And in honoring Epaphroditus like this, he's not merely honoring the man, but he's honoring the church. Um, which is a bit tricky sometimes for us. But when we, as a church, come together and we open God's word, and we prepare people to minister and to be servants of the Lord in the world, when we do that, and then those people go out and be servants of the Lord in the world, it's not merely those people who should be honored, but it is the church from which they come that should be honored. Um, if you think about from Ephesians 4, the structure of how the church is supposed to operate, um, we're told that God gave pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, the role of a pastor or a teacher in the church is to equip the saints to prepare Christian people, that's who saints are, to make sure they have what they need and again, their role is pastoring and teaching, so the way they do this is by shepherding, discipling, teaching God's Word. And in this, through God's Word, the goal is that the people, the saints, will have what they need in the Word of God, understanding, knowledge, role, function, to go out and perform the work of ministry. So it's not, and I know we've drawn attention to this in the past, but it's not the plan of the church in Christ for pastors and teachers to be appointed to go do all the ministry. In Ephesians 4, it's pastors and teachers are appointed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so when a church comes together and they support pastors and they support teachers and they sit under pastoral care and teaching care and they learn and they don't just nod off or they don't just survive, they don't just get through, but they learn and they grow and they, they're preparing themselves to go out into the world in whatever day-to-day -day functions they have and to be representatives of, representatives of Christ in the world around. And when they do well, it's not merely they who should be honored or recognized, but the whole assembly of God's people who are in faithful adherence to this structure, participating in the equipping of those saints for that ministry. And so as Paul honors Epaphroditus, he's not only honoring a man, but he's honoring the church who sent the man. Imagine what it would have been like for the church if they had sent Epaphroditus with this financial gift to Paul, and Paul's like, I received the gift, thank you, but you got some real problems with your guy. <laughs> 
That wouldn't be an honoring thing for the church, right? Like, thanks for the gift. It was necessary. I'm glad for your help, but we got to talk about, about the crew that came <laughs> from Philippi. And you think, oh, that's not good. But that's, that's the opposite of the testimony. It's, look, the crew that you sent, I consider to be brothers, co-workers, soldiers with me. That's an honoring thing. Verse 26, he says, I'm going to send him back since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. So we, we, we introed this. He was sick. They had heard it, which means, which means somebody came and delivered that message. Someone who, who went on the journey, either commissioned a messenger to go back or themselves departed the, the, the expedition early on the way to Rome to go and tell them. They had heard of his sickness, very close to death. And Epaphroditus was concerned that the church uh, had not had word about his recovery. And so Paul is saying, I'm sending him back since he was longing for you all, knowing that the last news you heard about him wasn't good. And he wants to get back. Um, the end part of verse 27 is worth pausing on. But God had mercy on him. And to that I'll say amen. Um, all that we truly knew, how often God has mercy on us. One day... Um, one day when I stand before the Lord and I enter into my inheritance as a child of God, uh, I want to rejoice and celebrate my God as He shows me all the various points in my life that could have gone wildly different, but God had mercy. Again, in, in our modern world, we think of, well, someone gets sick and they take medicine. Someone gets injured and there's a surgery. But there are many of us who know that there are things that medicines don't heal and that surgeries don't fix. And we've experienced that. And I'd say an equal number of us know that sometimes the medicine doesn't work and sometimes the surgery doesn't fix. And when we are afflicted, we should not think that we're placing our trust in the hands of doctors or pharmacology but in our God who has mercy on us if you've ever had a, a baby and been a parent to a newborn while the child is coughing with croup or struggling to breathe and you call the you know the new parent you call the numbers you're supposed to call and you say hey my you know my my daughter's coughing and she's kind of choking what should I do you know what they tell you? Just, uh, you know, make sure their airwaves are clear. And, uh, and you know, sometimes, I think they, at one point they said, put them on their stomach and then don't put them on their stomach. And they try to make up their mind about, how do I do this, right? And then you think, wait a minute, so there's no cure for this. The child's just going to cough in this crib. This newborn's just going to cough and choke in the crib. And, and, and you think, well, what, what do I do? Do I stay up all night and look at the child to make sure, you know, how, how's, how do I get through this, right? There's no solution. There's no, and it's like, no, uh, go to sleep and hope that the child keeps breathing. Go to sleep and hope that when you wake up, the baby is there and happy. Go to sleep and, 
and try to, you ever try to close your eyes and go to sleep when all you hear through the baby monitor is the coughing and the coughing and your mind spinning and those restless nights and you realize just how low the limits of modern medicine actually are, that there is nothing to keep my child breathing in the middle of the night. And it is a helpless feeling if you felt that before. It is a disarming feeling. The lot is cast in the lap of the Lord. And praise God when he has mercy as he did on Epaphroditus. Second part of verse 27, not only on him, he not only had mercy on this man who was sick, but he had mercy on me also, Paul says. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrowful Upon sorrow, therefore, I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Now, this is interesting. Paul says, you know, in a nutshell, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but what he says, what he claims is that when Epaphroditus recovered, it was God's mercy on me too because I would have, I would have been, you know, just distraught over the fact that this man died, you know, that Epaphroditus had died. And I'm sure he has in mind there, especially since he was on a commission to go minister to Paul. That would have been, you know, that would have been awful, is what he says. That, 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 you know, I would have been extremely sor- sorrowful. But he says sorrow upon sorrow, meaning he's already dealing with sorrow. And, and I'll remind you, he is a prisoner in Rome, without his freedom, totally dependent on what other people bring to him, and totally limited in his capacity to move around, and totally uncertain about his fate. So there is sorrow already in his life, and this would have been added sorrow to it. He says, now by sending him back, you know, I'll know that when you see him, you'll be, you, you know, you won't be worrying, you won't be concerned, you will rejoice. And he says, that will lessen my sorrow, verse 28, the end, that I may be less sorrowful, but not completely sorrowless. And the interesting thing about that is, is Paul has gone on again and again saying, I rejoice in the Lord, I rejoice in the Lord, even commanding others, rejoice in the Lord. And you say, wait a minute. How can someone say, I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing, and I'm sorrowful, and this would be more sorrow, and now I'll have a little less sorrow? What is the meshing of that? And I think it's good to point out exactly what joy is and isn't. Here's Gordon Fee, a a Bible commentator that I've quoted before in this study through Philippians, and he says this, just one line. Joy does not mean the absence of sorrow but the capacity to rejoice in the midst of it. Now that's a biblical definition. Jesus was a man of sorrow, but it was for the joy that was before him that he went to the cross. Both descriptions are apt. Paul is rejoicing. He is also sorrowful. In other words, we need not think, well, something is wrong in my life because I'm dealing with great sadness. I'm dealing with great darkness. I'm dealing with great difficulty and it is emotionally affecting me. Something is wrong. I should be joyful. I shouldn't feel this way. No. The Bible does not describe joy as some inhuman state whereby nothing can possibly make us sad. Joy is a spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit. You know, love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness. It's a gift given to those who live in a sad world. I once had uh, someone from our church come up to me and, and just say, you know, I, 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 I just think so-and-so is the perfect model of joy. And that shocked me because I didn't think so-and-so was a perfect model of joy. And I said, oh, really? Why is that? And because they're always smiling, you talk to them, they're always happy, they're always smiling. And I just, I, I didn't correct them. I said, okay, that's interesting. But folks, simply keeping a smile on your face all the time is not the spiritual gift of joy. Being a person who wakes up in the morning and always sees the sunny side of things, that's not spiritual joy. Any more than being a person who crawls out of bed and says, oh, I don't want to see anybody, I don't want to talk to anybody, I've got ten things that I don't want to do today. Any more than that makes that person the, the absence of spiritual joy. We have to understand that we all live in different human conditions under different human circumstances, but it is the real joy of the Lord that allows us to celebrate who we are in Him despite whatever circumstance we're dealing with. In some ways, this joy, matter of fact, I should say in every way, this joy is preferable to simply being happy because this joy will sustain you when the dark days come, and they certainly will. This is not merely pie in the sky. Someday things will get better, my dad used to say to people um, when, they, when he'd ask them how they were doing, and, and they would say, uh, oh, I'm not doing so well. This is going on. Uh, he used to say, don't worry, things will get better, and then they'll get worse, and then they'll get better, and then they'll get worse. <laughs> that's, what, that's what my dad, and, and uh, you know, I grew up with that kind of wisdom, which I appreciate, but it's true. If joy is simply a happy state when everything is going well, then boy, we've got, we got real problems. But if joy is the ability of God to sustain His people through intense difficulty and sadness with real hope of an assured inheritance and fellowship with Him, then that's something worth having. That's something worth having. You know, you watch someone really struggling and really having a hard time getting through something. Be careful what your counsel is. You know, be careful what you say. Someone whose child is very sick, look, look, don't, it's gonna, they're going to get better. They're going to get better. They may not. Someone whose marriage is going terribly and, you know, someone is leaving or threatening to leave or someone is doing something wrong or off. Don't worry, it's going to come around. It's going to turn on. It may not. That's the world we live in. That's sin. That's death. That's real. But our joy is not based on vain hopes. <laughs> someone just patting you on the back and saying, don't worry, it's going to get better. When it might not. That's not what the Christian, that's not what God's joy is based on. The joy of the Lord is that He is my strength. <laughs> he will sustain. All His promises are secure. My inheritance is not compromised. My fellowship with Him is real. And the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. He leads me. His rod and His staff, they comfort me. I'm not alone. So, yeah, let's not mistake this. Paul is calling us to rejoice, but he admits his own sorrows. Verse 29, last section here. 
his instruction. Receive him, receive, he's telling the church in Philippi, receive Epaphroditus, therefore in the Lord with all gladness. And here's where it applies to us and Philippi and every other church, hold such men in esteem. There's something about, I think, our kind of, you know, um, our recognition of the Bible's call to humility that we might misinterpret as we should never, you know, celebrate or esteem anyone. But that's not what Paul is saying, you know. We don't want anyone to be puffed up with pride and to think, well, I'm just the greatest thing in the world. But Paul is here telling him, hold men like Epaphroditus in esteem. Hold them up. Why? Because... For the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, you could hear that one of two ways. You could hear, okay, I'm supposed to esteem him because he almost died. I don't think that's what it's saying. If that were the case, then holding anyone in esteem is going to be a very rare event indeed, okay? Because, you know, we're not all going to go to the point of death. And I don't think Epaphroditus was hoping to brush up against death just to have the respect of his people back at home. I don't think that's it. I think what it's saying is because this is what he did, he came close to death for the work of Christ, but not regarding his life for the work of Christ. Not regarding his life, he served Christ. And this is in line with everything we've read in chapter 2, isn't it? With Jesus, who did not regard his life, but who became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. If that is Christ, then those of us who would be about the work of Christ can hardly excuse ourselves from faithful service out of regard to our own life. If the Messiah did not regard his own life, but instead considered the needs of others, if that is the work of Christ, then those who are commissioned to work for Christ, which we all are, cannot excuse ourselves from the labor because we have regard to certain areas of our own life. So he says, hold him in esteem. You know, Paul was evangelizing, but we don't get any reference in here to Epaphroditus evangelizing. You know, maybe he was going around Rome, passing out pamphlets. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. By the way, I don't think that's really evangelizing, but never mind that. All we know Epaphroditus did was take the trip, show up in Rome, deliver the gift. And yet Paul says that he was working for Christ. So should we disconnect working for Christ from gospel ministry? Is working for Christ something else? I don't don't think that's it. I think instead we should see Epaphroditus delivering this gift is in support of gospel ministry. He is working for Christ without going out and knocking on the doors. Not that he shouldn't go out and knock on the doors, but Epaphroditus is participating as the whole church in Philippi is participating because they are caring for Christ's workers who are doing Christ's work. In fact, they are Christ's workers in the whole supply chain of the delivery of the gospel to the Roman Empire. Paul didn't starve to death on his journeys. God supplied all of his needs. I've, I spent a number of years working in the supply chain. 
It's a bit of labor to work in the supply chain. When things go wrong, the products don't get delivered and you have unhappy customers. Paul had people who were hearing the gospel and being saved. And they were participating in that. They were participating. Not regarding his life, he did this. Just take a moment as we close here and imagine Epaphroditus for a second. Um, I know this is speculative and, you know, if you don't think this is appropriate, that's fine. Just plug your ears. But imagine Epaphroditus for a second. I mean, here's a, by all accounts, what seems to be an average guy by, you know, the world standards. I mean, we don't get any hint that he's this massive business holder or anything like that. He's just a pastor in a local church in Philippi. And they hear Paul is suffering and imprisoned. And they think, we need to do something about that, you know? We know Paul, and we know his needs. So let's take up an offering for Paul. And then we need a couple people to go deliver it. And I don't know if he was volunteered or voluntold or volunteered himself, but he's, okay, I'm going to go, I'll take it, and you know, a couple people are going to go with me. Now, what would you think of that? Because in some ways, I think that would be kind of exciting. I think that would be kind of interesting. Right? I mean... I get to travel to Rome at the church's expense. That's kind of exciting. You know, I get to go to, I get to go see Rome, the Colosseum, the, I'm going to travel down the Roman roads. I'm going to go through the Roman empire and I'm going to get to go see Paul. Now I'm not saying there was no trepidation, no anxiety, no concern about any of that, but that's not like a depressing thing. That's kind of an exciting thing. At least you might see it in that light. And somewhere along this trip, he coughs one morning. I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, the first cough. I don't know. Whatever it is. He wakes up and he can't breathe through his nose. I don't know. You know, he felt fine before dinner and after dinner. He doesn't feel fine anymore. And it gets worse. And it gets worse. And it gets worse. And at some point you think, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, you know, but by the side of the road, on the way to Rome... I'm going to die here. And by all accounts, and, and, and to his credit, he seems okay with that. <laughs> he just keeps going. He just keeps going. I mean, could he not have been excused for going home way before this? <laughs> Either when he started to feel sick or when he started to recover? He didn't have to finish the journey. He could have gone. You know, there were other people with him. They, they, they could have figured out a way. Could he not have been? But he's committed. This is my job, and I am going to do it, and my life is in the hands of the Lord. <laughs> I'm going to see this through. Oftentimes in our Christian lives, um, we demonstrate just how bad we are at anticipating when God is going to use us for some greater purpose. Um, when we think about what we might do for the Lord, sometimes we either draw blanks or come up with these grand ideas that never materialize or set the bar incredibly low so that we have a good chance of clearing it, whatever it is. But here God chose that he was going to use Epaphroditus for something and the man was not prepared for it. I mean, he, he didn't know it was coming. It didn't seem like it was going to be a brush with death and there it is. And in that moment, 
by continuing faithfully, by doing what God had called him to do, by not choosing his own life over the mission that God had given him. He is to be highly esteemed and recognized forever in the word of God. It is unlikely in your life that you are going to anticipate when God is getting ready to use you for some great purpose. You are called to simply be faithful, be prepared, be equipped, be trained, and be faithful. And when God uses you, trust Him with it. Don't step back and say, wait a minute, this is suddenly getting harder than I thought it would be. I'm out. Whoa, I need to draw back. I'm not ready. Serve God with all your heart and God will use you. God will use you. We're going to have another baptism this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for men like Epaphroditus, women like Epaphroditus in my life, who did not regard their own schedules or their own finances, their own, their own preferences, sometimes their own children as something to be prioritized over ministering in my life for your kingdom. I thank you for your wisdom in assembling the body of Christ the way that you have. Not everybody is an evangelist. Not everybody is a teacher. Not everyone is gifted with great faith. But the body of Christ working together is effective as your hands and feet in a lost and dying world. Thank you for your arrangement, for the dependency that it requires in and among your people, for the fellowship that your spirit attains. Father, help our tithes and offerings to be used for your purposes. Give us wisdom. Help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.